I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. This watch is really glad that, you know, we could get past the whole Marcus thing, you know? Uh, I was gonna say you should say like was I miserable because I listened to podcasts <laughs> or was I miserable because I recorded a podcast <laughs> uh, yeah where we love to watch we're movie podcasts uh, we're in our would you say we're in our top five movie podcasts that we listen to of ourselves um, that I listen to yeah I usually listen to our episodes for a few minutes to <laughs> yeah so yeah shit great uh, uh yeah we're now we're in it you're not a critic anymore peter you're creating art you're part yeah. of it we're um a, a i just think i just think that's neat I went from laura to marge simpson uh but we're a movie podcast we pick a theme we do movies over the course of the month around that theme we're in our last week of uh one for two sex, the John Cusack story. I forget what was your what was your title. <laughs> uh, two in the Cusack. Two in the Cusack. Um, and we are covering kind of parallel uh, some high school to adulthood parallel movies that John Cusack made that we think have some thematic similarities or represent some sort of like if this character existed at this stage, this is an approximation of what he could be. So our first pair of that was better off dead and gross point blank. And we're in our last episode uh, last week. We did say anything, which is about a, a high school kid who decides that he's in love with this person. And, and in that movie, anyways, it basically works out. And now we're doing high fidelity. Uh, The movie that was, I, I didn't realize kind of until I was doing some research for this, this movie was actually very successful, uh, which I kind of thought it wasn't. It it almost doubled its budget. It you know <clears throat> it made like worldwide like fifty million dollars, which is you know in two thousands money in a, a mid budget adult R rated like romantic comedy. It's it's pretty pretty goddamn good. And, and a movie that stretches the likability of the main character pretty far and isn't really that romantic. Yeah. And but this is the movie, you know, after this movie, I'm sure we'll talk about it here today. John Cusack actually did get launched into A-list stardom. And some of the reviews at the time were they're very positive. But they also know that John Cusack has finally kind of uh, there was one review that basically said that John Cusack's kind of finally filled this potential of being like a Hollywood leading man. Like he had kind of done some roles that seemed like it was there and they were never took off the way. And Hollywood kind of agreed because after this he starts being, you know, opposite Julia Roberts, uh, you know, Hollywood romantic comedy royalty or opposite like young newcomers like Kate Beckinsale and Serendipity. Uh, he starts doing these bigger budget like summer 
counter-programming movies that kind of suck the soul out of his character a little. And then also these, like, somewhat mid-to-big-budget thrillers like um, Identity or or some of those other ones. And, like, you know, this is kind of – we talked about this, that there's probably, like, a couple – a few good John Cusack movies post this movie, but they become as opposed to like almost as opposed to John Cusack being in a movie being almost some sort of mark of quality in the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, after this, it becomes like he just kind of loses the thread and just stops being in the in mostly interesting movies. There's exceptions to that, um, but. It is uh, it is something that obviously takes a turn from this movie. And this movie, which I didn't realize was as big of a hit as it was, sort of launched him into that superstardom. Um, and it is like, you know, watching it from the perception of like a parallel to Say Anything. I really do think it fits well with that. Say Anything, as we said, the protagonist is – falls in love easily and hard and gets hurt um, when it comes. When it comes around, the difference of Lloyd Dobler in that movie is that he makes a point to not become someone who hates women over a bad breakup. That's very explicitly stated in that movie. Where John Cusack in this movie, I think you could make a sense, uh, does not – hate women's not the right word, although there's a lot of animosity directed towards women as a gender, <laughs> cis women as a gender in general. Uh, but also his growth in this movie is essentially – um, and I, I, I sent this as a joke to you, Peter, but it really is his moment of realization is just like, hey, women are human beings, too, <laughs> uh, with, that are not these like male fantasies that exist for us, that they have agency and foibles and thoughts and desires. And and wow, maybe I should be thinking of relationships in a more grounded sense as opposed to uh putting them on a some sort of a misogynist fantasy stool that they could never hope to to live up to. And so uh you know that that is a it, it's still kind of a similar character. It's just someone who is uh the worst. He's he's really Rob is not great. And what's you you made a very good joke to me in text that this movie should be rated PG thirty, <laughs> maybe even PG thirty five, because when you be because they cast John Cusack, because the writing's really good, because John Cusack works in a record store, likes cool music, and seems kind of cool. And of course, you're right in his head because he's talking to the camera the whole time. Um, that it's very easy to think of John Cusack as a good guy or someone to to look up to, and and or someone to be like, I kind of want to be like him, or I identify some similar situations because I too have been through breakups that I didn't want to happen. And it, it's not you're dropped in the middle of the breakup. You drop, you know (laughs) that, you know that he's a charming, charismatic guy. It's John Cusack. who You love in other movies. You have no context. You don't know who fucked up, who did what to who. And it's kind of a bomb drop later. All the shitty things he did to ruin the relationship. And, uh, so obviously you're going to take his side right away. And that's the point is that Rob is telling you the story from his perspective. It's very yeah. easy to get trapped in his shit. And then the movie hits actually way harder if you get wrapped up in all of wrapped up around the, 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 the wheels, uh, for, uh, Rob's, um, inherent, just like loneliness turned into like, um, just 
it's mis- it's misogyny, but it's more just like a, a, a dislike of people, like misanthropy. Yeah, I have that in my notes. But uh, he's he's both uh, misanthropic, but also like a misogynist. But again, misogynist in the way that like he just doesn't see women that he dates as like people. They are supposed to be fantasies, and we'll, we'll get into some of that stuff. And like they're a prism to reflect him. Yeah, eyes. and when they and then when they reflect poorly or. They are affected by things, asshole things that he does. He uh, does not internalize any of that. Instead, puts it all externally on them for their behavior, the way they're reacting and stuff like that. And like, you know, this does have somewhat of a it's definitely not ending that I think lets Rob off the hook. But I think this is, you know, it's also very funny. You said, like, not very romantic. It's a movie about growing up and like. If you remove some of the Rob influence, it's also from Laura's perspective, some movie about growing up and settling. Like, this is good enough. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that like um, I there's things I like about this relation that like, makes me feel comfortable. Is this the person of my dreams? Nope. But is this like, am I OK when I'm with them? Do I have some fun? Do I do those sort of things? And like. I don't. It's not meant to be sad in this movie. I don't think it's sad in real life too. I obviously don't think of my like partner as someone I settled for. But you know, there's a there's something that I think this movie, when you're you know dumb and seventeen, and again are getting sucked into some of the things in this movie. Like, there's a great thing about this movie, Peter. You talked about it actually, unrelated in a in a in another recent episode where he talks about like the advantages of being shallow in a relationship and that like Mm -hmm. liking all the same stuff is important like music these art these are the things that we can connect on and maybe like that's it doesn't actually matter what you're like as a person but if you like all the same stuff that's an important thing and i think when you're like 17 or 18 and this includes relationships or friends and things like that you can be like oh yeah if i just like watching movies with these guys and we all like watching the same movies or we like seeing the same concerts that's all i need out of a friend who cares what else they think and then like as you mature (laughs) you are like uh you i mean not this is not necessarily universal there's a lot of people smarter than me that this will go for any time i say you during the course of this specific podcast (laughs) but um you know, you, you can kind of be like, oh, like, yes, we like the same movies, but like we have radically different views in some in some areas like that are that are affecting like reflecting how we would raise children or navigate the world together or feel feel close. And so, like, you know, the you realize there's things more important than than those things. That's the shallowness, right? It's it's literally like skin deep, like. You know, my wife and I, Shauna, like, we like some of the same TV shows. We like some of the same movies. We like some of the same music. But, like, you know, 75% of the stuff I like, she's not interested in. And who cares? Like, we can still find the things that we can connect on. And, the you know, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't settle for, like, well – she doesn't like she doesn't like watching all these same foreign films I like watching. You realize how unimportant that is when it comes to a partner. And so like some of the realizations that happen in this movie, I think somewhat from Laura's side, which are more impl- implicit than the explicit narration of Rob, um, I think do like ring true like what growing up is um, and what you should think about how you approach, you know, some form of relationships. Yeah, it's true. And I, I remember the context you're talking about, um, because I also watched the, the TV show and this, this scene is in there and I'll, I'll find a moment to talk about that briefly. But um, 
the I had yeah like I had a close uh I had a a close group of friends freshman year of college that I ended up just kind of not like I thought because we all shared the same interests in music and movies and and everything that we'd be best friends forever but we actually like fundamentally disagreed on like what stage of life we were in and what how we should treat each other and like it's just eventually I was just like I kind of just stepped outside that group because I I realized that I needed more than just like common interests and then uh, somebody who I had a long relationship with uh, unrelated to the person I was talking about last week um, someone I had a long relationship with we had a ton of music and movies and stuff in common and that was like part of the reason that breaking up was so hard was because was because like I was like how am I going to find someone who has all of the same interests in as me how am I going to find someone that like will do this and this and this with me or like um, and the truth, like, how am I going to find someone that wants to like sit around and get high and, li- and listen to Black Moth Super Rainbow with me, but also we can have sex, um, not to Black Moth Super Rainbow. Um, and we, uh, as I say, is we like, it made the breakup more protracted. My wife and I, when we met, we had all the same sort of sensitivities ethical values how we handled conflict was very like um complimentary yeah um we were very respectful of each other we didn't have you know we were we weren't afraid to say i'm sorry like all that shit like all the important stuff and then we had some things in common and uh, over time we grew to have more things in common yada 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 um but like my wife and i are amazing like we we, we've been together for 10 years and she treats me so so great in a way that i never thought i was like i I deserved um but like on paper we have very little interests in common right it's just over time you build interests in common or you find common ground with each other you listen to similar stuff right like yeah i mean that that is like showing stuff that you guys like or finding what their likes and dislikes are. Oh, this is a show we should watch together or this isn't. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, that is so important. Also like, I mean, so the, the kind of serious relationship I had in my twenties that like was getting close to engagement. That's a really good example of, again, we had a ton of stuff in common, but like as, and I was decently political at that time, but we were kind of opposite ends of the political spectrum. And like, you know, when you're in love with someone, sometimes you're like, Oh, this stuff doesn't matter. And then it's like, oh, I don't know. Like, if we live together, I want you to keep a bunch of guns in the house. I know you come, come from a hunting family. But then, like, you know, or like, oh, you don't really want kids. Okay, well, I guess I kind of want kids. Like, you know, you end up like, oh, cool that we both like the same bands. But, like, we, you know, we weren't good at uh, resolving arguments. We weren't good at a lot of stuff. And it's just like, man, if we – if this became serious, this would be it. Like, this – or this became, like, took the next level into, like, moving in together or getting engaged and stuff like this. Like, this this wasn't going to work. And it's because we're just fundamentally – not compatible as people even if again we had attraction to each other and you know uh enjoyed spending time together and like had a lot of the same interests like at some point that is oh that's not that's not all to hang an entire relationship on it's shallow right you're not going to get into a deep relationship with someone whether you can be at odds with that many things and like th- this movie is a little bit about is a little bit about that as well. But this movie, when I first saw it, so I I said in previous episodes, I was so excited for this movie to come out. 
um, because I was on the John Cusack ch- train, and after having seen Gross Point Blank in like 1998, maybe, and this was like the next movie, and I knew it was written by the the, the Gross Point Blank team, um, and that's actually it was the this the the movie's based on a Nick Hornby book that uh, is takes place in London. And the main, the lead character's name is different, but essentially Nick Hornby said himself, it's like they just shot my screenplay. Like it is so close. I've never read the book, but his his perception is that this is so close to his book that uh, it might as well be his book if just transplanted into transplanted into Chicago. Uh, the studio Touchstone picked it up, and the executive there had worked with John Cusack on Gross Point Blank and said, "Hey, John Cusack and his producing and his writing team." Uh, they're great. And this sensibility seems to match perfectly. So uh, they brought them in after a first script was turned in that they kind of liked. Uh, and they really kind of shaped it to this, you know, that same sensibility. And so I, I knew all that stuff. And I because I worked at a video store and we had all the magazines of what was coming up. And I was pumped for this. And within 10 minutes, I I really liked fourth wall breaking. And I feel like it didn't happen that much in the movies I was watching at the time. Five minutes into this movie where he's turning and going through like, here's here's my top five greatest breakups in all time. And you realize like the early structure of this movie is like him taking a tour through his life uh, and like saying this idea of like, I have – I'm going to tell you the story of my top five worst breakups and then we're going to go back. I was like – I was so in immediately. I was uh, – I loved it. And also this is my high school girl, girlfriend – her name was Allison, who went out like I think like a year and a half or close to two years or whatever. Um, this came out my senior year when I finally got to watch it in video because I don't remember going to theaters near me. Um, and we had broken up a few months ago and I had been on a lot of dates. Like, you know, I had a, I had a good group of friends. And they were like always like, oh, my friend likes you from like you guys should go on a date. And I feel like I went on a ton of first dates, maybe like too many for a high school student. I feel like that's <laughs> that's something that happens later in your life. But like I was it, constantly. It feels very, a very adult thing because like in high school, you get to spend an inordinate amount of time with people and you don't necessarily need a first date. Because, like, you're usually spending an inordinate amount of time with a large group of people. Well, that's the thing. Like, so I was in plays, which was a combined of different schools. So I feel like I had a bunch of friends by this point in in both schools. So I didn't know everyone. Like, I had a group of them I would hang out with. And I was I was constantly being, like, set up or, like um, – or just randomly, like, asking girls out in other classes and going on dates. Like, I, I was – I was uh, I was very into the concept of dating, and most of the dates didn't. You know, we'd watch a movie, we'd go mini golfing, like nothing. You know, not even any heavy petting um, <laughs> or anything like that. But like just a date, and then also it was like if you they weren't in your friend group. This is such a like elder millennial thing. It was really hard to stay consistently in touch with them because like no one had cell phones, and so you would like. I still remember once like leaving a message with a girl's parents who I'd been on one date with and telling them like, Hey, if I, I'm at this video rental store, I work at for the next two days from like four to 10. So just call that number. Cause it was a gas station video store and I was the only one there. And like, 
that kind of like how do you I, I was either at friend's house at school or working. I was barely home and yeah. my family like rarely gave messages. It was just like you could just not talk to someone or know how to ever talk to them or know if they called you back. And then you do the thing of like, should I call again or are they going to call me back or is this a message that I should back yeah, off? Yeah, am I not taking a hint? Yeah. So, I, you know, it was kind of a funny thing, but it is true that sometimes it was just like if you didn't see them every day in a school capacity and they weren't in your friend groups – like, you could just be like, I, I don't know how to ever really consistently get in contact with them. <laughs> I I'm I, I kind of was in a sweet spot for a lot of dating stuff where and I don't see, mean sweet spot in like a nostalgic, idealized sense. Um, I'll explain in a second. In eighth grade, I didn't have a cell phone, but my mom would let me borrow hers. So if I yeah. was texting a girl, which was rare because I was in eighth grade. I we would just I would just delete any text from her. Yeah. Um. Or I'd like mute her number or whatever. I yeah. I do something to hide the text or whatever. If she texted me while I was using my mom's phone, and like I did this cutesy thing for a little bit, and then somewhere freshman year, I think my mom was eventually like, "Here's your own cell phone," because I'm sick of you borrowing mine. Um. And so I had a cell phone to text girls. We had to figure out minutes and all that bullshit, but like that's boring. It's just it, it, yeah. It, we I mean we I didn't have there was no cell phone like no one had a cell phone in my high school. My freshman year in college, a couple people had cell phones. Like we were mostly communicating via our dorm room numbers, and we all had actual phones with answering machines still. And yeah. this is like two thousand one, two thousand two. And then when I came back sophomore year, myself and everyone had cell phones. And then it was like two years later, texting took off. So like yeah. Th- which, which aligns with your timing, but it's kind of like that's one of those areas where those eight years that we're apart or seven years or whatever is like a fucking chasm between like those yeah. those high school and college years and like how we used phones. And I didn't have map. I didn't have Google Maps on my phone when I first started driving. But my did my dad did have a Garmin that he kept in a like leather bag by the door that I would yep. borrow if I was going somewhere. Yep. And for a period of time, I would just print off Ask Jeeves. And, yeah, we and, did we we did print off MapQuest, but yeah. I mean Bism- Bismarck wasn't that hard to find <laughs> too many places. But uh, but in like the urban sprawl of Chicago, man, like yeah, oh I, I'm sure, like the Chicago suburbs. Like, how, the, how do you find anything? I have no yeah, idea. like. Trying to find um, somebody's apartment in Chicago or trying to find the right house in the suburbs. Like, it was just, like, too crazy. I mean, um, there's so- the, there's the like, I spent, I did spend a lot of time using the phone book grid. Like, where you look up an num- address in the index and you find it and then you just basically go, okay, how do I trace that from where I live? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and then by the time, so, and then I, uh, by the time that I had graduated college, um, like okay, Cupid and some of that stuff existed, but like Tinder, Bumble, all that stuff was either didn't exist or it was in like its nascent phase. So like I've never done online dating. Me neither. Um, I have never like I never did online dating when I was in college. Uber didn't exist, so we just had to like call a cab company if we were way too drunk to get home. From I mean, I called cab. Like you're, I called cabs into my mid to late twenties. I think I was still calling cabs in like. I think Sean and I were still taking cabs places when we first met. Yeah. It, like, there's, like, some generational shit that's that's very funny. But I did have the advantages of technology when I yeah. first started dating. And the the way that you could – you could tur- – so, 
what you had was interesting because it was like, did they not call me back or did they call me back? And my stupid brother didn't take the message down or they, or yeah, or they, I gave them cause I'm never at home. I gave them my work number and they called two days later and like the, this other guy answered cause I said to call Tuesday or did their parents not give them the message or like, you know, like yeah. there's so, so many different permutations of why you didn't get a call back. Um, yeah. And then uh, no. you, you're like, am I am I just not taking a hint? Like, and I had the version of that, which was, I guess, I would so never, I would never call back. Like that would be it. Like if if something didn't happen or or something like that, I was I was not persistent because I didn't want to be annoying. Like, yeah, I I definitely let a few relationships fall to the wayside when I was in high school and yeah. going into college because, um, and I f- would find out later, they were like, he never texted me. And I was like, I was like, you kind of like didn't text me for like two weeks. So I just yeah. assumed you were bored. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like, I would always, I would always, I never felt like that. I was like, uh, I, I needed to pursue, like I, I wasn't a Lloyd Dobler and like, I'm going to keep, it was like, okay, any form of resistance or perceived resistance, I'm out. Like I will find another date. I was not, I was not worried about it. E- e- yeah. 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 So I, yeah. Like there, there's like all these ways you can get in your own head. Like, um, and like the, Ang- the angry breakup phone calls and the post breakup yeah. angry phone calls that are in this movie are still incredibly relatable to literally yeah. any person living today. I think this movie yeah. has aged pretty darn well if you have a good sense of um, uh, 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 of uh, perspective that the yeah. movie does not want you to necessarily cheer on Rob's every word and action. <laughs> yeah. I think the movie has aged pretty well. And one of the key things is this movie features a lot of like missed connections or hey come meet me at work or yeah. um uh hey i'm uh you know like i I'm a, i finally got my girlfriend on the phone who broke uh, my ex-girlfriend on the phone and yeah. we're like not communicating great and i should probably give up but i'm not giving up like that kind of stuff that like speaks to a certain innocence or naivety um and then later on in life speaks to abusive behavior um <laughs> Well, even like the reconnecting that he does, almost like it it presages what happened when everyone my age got Facebook. But we, you know, we all looked up old friends that we hadn't talked to for six years, and we're like, "What have you been up to? Why didn't we stay friends?" Or like ex girlfriends or things like that. And we're like, "We're gonna add you as a friend." And sometimes you'll be like, "Hey, what's going on in your life?" There is kind of a weird like, you know, ability to reconnect with someone that you probably had Facebook from the second you were in high school. So you, mm-hmm. you were meeting all those people. But, f- but for me, like it became popular in like 2008, I'd graduate high school in 2001. Like, um, my class did a, did a 2001 as they say. Um, yeah. And, uh, they don't say that. Uh, I was going to try to make I mean, a 9-11. I was going to try to make it a 9-11 joke and then I realized it didn't work. So if you want to cut that out, <laughs> nothing's worse than a failed 9-11. Um, I think a successful 9-11 is way worse than a failed 9-11. Well, you know, tomato, tomato. <laughs> um, anyways, to get back to what I was saying, though, like, so this... As many failed 9-11s as you want every day. But <laughs> yeah, but if you get one good one, yeah, no one all, shuts the fuck up about it. The entire it generation ever. of boomers goes insane. <laughs> yeah. um, so, I, but this movie came out, and I was in that phase, and I was, I was kind of like... I'd had a really good, like, long-term relationship, and it was a very amicable breakup. 
We've been together a year and a half. We spent like every day together, even around friends. Every day after school when I wasn't working, I would go to her house. Like it was just – it was, just, and then all of a sudden like we had like – we were not getting along as much and we had – I had like a weekend where I was doing something and I was gone and like I came back and we, and we had said like let's let's take – we're a week – it's like we never have weekends or weekdays apart. Take a weekend. Let's come back and kind of figure out like what we want to do and we both kind of came back and go, let's just – let's just break up like – like that was a good break. We should just break up. But then like I really liked that relationship. I liked having that closeness with someone. So, I, you know, I'm going on dates and stuff like that and nothing's really connecting in the same way. You know, most things just feel like friends and there's not like that spark. And then this movie comes out and I'm like – I'm like – I you know, I watched the movie over and over, became evangelical about it, about it to friends and stuff like that. And I started getting sucked into that kind of thought of like – you know, the the kind of ending realizations of John Cusack in this movie, like, so what am I going to do? Like, am I going to jump from rock to rock for the rest of my life because my gut's telling me I should try something new? And, like, again, he's 32 in this movie. I am 17 at the time, you know, but I'm – but I am connecting with the concept of – I've made a mistake in my attempt to find something bright, shiny and new and, and getting kind of sick of the old things and not getting comfortable. I've I've taken a, a jump and it was like constant on my brain. I remember one night at uh, like it was like 11 p.m. I kind of snuck out of my house as a weeknight and I'm like, I'm going to go and I kind of decided I wanted to get back together with her again, 100% predicated by, by this movie. And I – Went into my car and I snuck out and I drove to her house and I got to their house and I real I was gonna like rap on her window. I don't know what I was thinking. It's not like we ever did that when we were dating. Um, but I realized I wasn't sure from the outside of the house which one was her window, and I, you know, and I, <laughs> so I like gave up. I'm like, oh, like you know, I don't wake up her little. His little I don't want to wake up her parents at eleven. I, you know, I. Now, but the thing was, every single day, I mean, my senior year, uh, she's in her junior year, every single day, first period, we walked by each other. Our classes were, you know, we sometimes did head nods, but we weren't like, you know, we weren't like rude to each other, but we also weren't like, hey, you know, we, we'd had a breakup and we went our separate ways. Um, the next day, I was still like, because of this movie, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to say something. So, like, I walked by her and I said... Um, I said, Hey, sometime after school today, do you want to meet? I'd like to talk to you. And she goes, she goes, yeah, I can do that. Uh, my boyfriend's coming over later, but we can meet before that. And like, it never occurred to me that she would have a boyfriend, a new boyfriend. I don't know why I didn't become, uh, a, a Rob, but I was, but I was kind of, again, the part I related to is like, Oh shit. I want to get back together now and you have an Ian in your life, right? I didn't plot. I didn't do creepy things. I didn't make calls. I let it go. But I – like then I was kind of in that spiral of like sadness. I was like, oh, I realized what would solve my dating woes or my romantic life problems is getting back together with Allison. She's met someone else. Of course she did. She's great. Why wouldn't she meet someone else? And here I am, an idiot who – you know, all, the, all those sort of things and like – it, all of those feelings were tied into this movie uh, as well. Now, I told this story a little bit. Three months later, we ended up at this high school karaoke thing. She had broken up with her boyfriend. We walked out to talk. 
and we were back together for two months before we broke up again. <laughs> no, no, we were right. Sounds about it. right. Like, yeah, which could easily happen to Laura and Rob in this movie as well. But like I said, this movie was so relatable. I, I literally drove to someone's house at 11 p.m. at night because I'm just like, again, not the relatability of women are terrible or or that sort of thing, but that kind of like that the, there's a line that he says in this movie that I definitely think ascribed to myself is like you have to be of a certain disposition to be worried about being alone forever when you're 26. And we were of that disposition. And I did place in, in the same way Rob does in this movie or Lloyd didn't say anything. I did place a lot of value on the concept of finding the one or finding the person to be with and right like that puts a lot of pressure on relationships puts a lot of pressure on like how long you're going to casually date someone if they're not the right person or stuff like that and so like um so like that kind of disposition of like have i messed up have i moved on from something too quick like why did they break up with me and like not thinking about like you know me kind of breaking up with them or stuff like that did i make a mistake like that sort of thing like connected with me quite a lot at at that age um which again is hopefully better than the connecting of like you know <laughs> that like uh these breasts were mine and i wanted them because i di- i don't i honestly like it's not it's not romanticizing my past. That wasn't the way that I thought. If anything, I gave women quite a lot of space when I even had the inkling that they might have <laughs> be interested in me. But like, you know, that feeling of like uh, romance is important. Being in love is important. And I want to be in love with someone. And when I wasn't feeling like had I fucked up previous relationships and like replaying them in my mind and reliving them and stuff like that, that part I, I connected to quite a lot. And so like. And I, I missed some of the more misogynist thing, but I said this to you, like rewatching this movie, I was I haven't watched this movie in 15 years and I was worried that it was going to be like a fuck, this is embarrassing. But I realized watching it that the, the parts of Rob that I connected to um, were were is, are somewhat universal. I think that feeling not always universal, but that feeling of like reliving your past relationships and trying to figure out what went wrong and what you can do in the future or like being in a comfortable relationship and wondering if you should try something new and then feeling like I blew it. Like that kind of like constant overthinking both current and past romantic relationships and feeling like you just want something that matches and fits, which at that time, like connecting with that wasn't as embarrassing as I, rem- as I thought it was going to be for myself. And I felt like, yeah, okay. Like, there's a lot of garbage here. Rob is not a good person and all the other things. But, like, the part that spoke to me is not embarrassing. And so I had a lot of fun with this movie. I Not only is it a very funny movie and it's got really good music and we'll, we'll talk about all that stuff. Like, I didn't have that shame spiral I was expecting to be like, oh, my fucking God, I identified with Rob Gordon <laughs> in high fidelity that I was um, – that I was expecting that because this did this movie last thing I'll say I mean this not to not to use a joke that sounds like I'm referencing this movie but in high school I made a top 100 list and this was like number four it was in my top five it stayed in there for quite a long time until I kind of just watched it so many times I got sick of it but this was a movie that I was obsessed with and loved and I and looking back at high school and college me I see the parts that I connected with strongly yeah I mean that's it's it's good it's good perspective to have because I did. I also watched it when I was fourteen, and I think it had some negative effects on the way that I um, viewed relationships. Um, it was one of those movies that I think sort of helped um, 
uh, romanticize the idea of a um, misanthrope whose only uh, whose o- o- only friends are the records and the occasional lovers that break out of their lives. You know, yeah. um, like the that 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 sort of concept of these men, and it's it's a concept that's come back time and time again. I mean, there's that famous line from Mad Men. Um, one of uh, Don Draper's uh, uh, mistresses says um, something along the lines of uh, you'll only like things at the beginning. Um, you yeah. only like basically saying same thing that Rob gets told is like you only like like new things. You like the fantasy. And then when the reality starts to come into, into focus, all of a sudden you have to run away. And like that's Don Draper's story. Like it's a story of a lot of of. I mean, we also covered modern romance. Like on this on this <laughs> show, it's a similar, very similar thing. Um, I mean, he's he's a he should be locked away in modern romance. Though, yeah, which I think is a, a little. He's more maniacally uh, a version yeah, but, of Rob. Rob is more empathetic. Uh, empathetic. I would well, say. Well, even gross point blank. blank. I, I did like the idea of not being hurt by your past and having an emotional distance from people in relationships is a sometimes an easily romanticized idea right because but because it's like oh it would be great if i could have the relationship without getting hurt because i'm not going to be affected regardless of how it goes and then positioning that way i do think that's a little like it is different i i connected i said i connected with um with Martin Blank from that perspective a little bit at that age, and I did. I do think that's different because, if anything, I think Rob Gordon is incredibly affected by by his personal relationships. He just, you know, as um, as uh, what's her name, uh, 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 uh what well, Lisa Bonet's character. I forget the character's name, but as Lisa Bonet says, like you were full of shit. You were playing it cool. And uh, but you're not like you are incredibly obsessed and affected and bothered by everything going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, I think that it's important. And I want to talk a little bit about this and then I want to briefly talk about the show. I think yeah. it's important that these stories are about men. And I can also understand why a woman or a lot of men, uh, a lot of people in general would see a story like this or see Mad Men about these like sad sack guys um, yeah. who nonetheless have some sort of, you know, financial independence and they have some some sort of uh, glamour to them. Like Don Draper is, is the glamour of a specific era. Um, Rob Gordon is sort of a Gen X dream. He get, he finally got to buy the record store and runs the record store. And it seems like they sell three records a week and that's fine. Um, yeah. Um, and and he's uh, he's much cooler than the only two other people he hangs yes. around with consistently. So. Yes, yes, yeah. And I can see why someone would find, particularly members of our audience, probably listening to this right now, would find that entire concept very tiresome. Like, why do we keep naming have these stories about masculine men who um, are so defensive of their ego? That they become these strange uh, misanthropes and misogynists and these like um, weird goth archetypes <laughs> to like, why are we so obsessed with stories about these like these these men that, uh, you know, have been hurt by the world and thus they sh- they turn their back to the world because they're better than the world and they will not be embarrassed by the rejection of women, they will not be harmed by the rejection of women because they never matter to them much. These sort yeah. of men that um, are numb to the world because they made themselves impervious, right? Yeah. Like, why do we keep telling these stories? And I think it's I think it's partially because it's 
that men haven't figured this out about themselves yet, right? Like, why is it so comforting when you've been hurt by the world to turn into this version of masculinity, right? Well, uh, so obviously, the, so many obviously people... it's a scale, right? It goes from Rob all the way down to, uh, uh, like, um, who's the, who's the, the, like, uh, let's just say a mass shooter. I don't want to name his name. Uh, I did finally come up with his name. Uh, but the, the incel mass shooter guy. Um, like, there's a sliding scale, right? Where you're like, yeah. you, you eventually, that numbness turns into, um, a bitterness, and then that bitterness turns into anger, and then you just kind of become this, like, now all you care about is your rejection. All you care about is your pain. Well, and then you romanticize that, right? And then you romanticize that. And you I've been rejected by the world. I've been rejected by, you know, that's the incel and the MRA stuff. Like, yeah, they, they've hurt. I have been hurt by them um, through and through maybe not not only have like they done no malice towards you, but they might not even know you exist. And even by not knowing you exist and not paying you the attention that you deserve, that that is actually like a crime against you for which punishment is due. Like, yeah. And I, and like those lone wolf sort of Andrew Tate types, these fucking losers, yeah. um, those guys, um, they exist and they continue to exist. And I'm not saying we have to continue to tell stories about them, but that is like an aspect of masculinity. And it doesn't always come out as guys, like I'm not saying Rob would become a mass shooter or whatever, but like Rob choosing how he makes him tries to make himself invulnerable to the world actually like makes him into the worst version of himself and yeah. the, and the version of rob that is humble and is willing to seek introspection it's like the meme like you know like um men would rather do blah yeah. than go to therapy yeah men that seek introspection and vulnerability and just seek and find seek and root out the things that make them truly unhappy um or their reactions to unhappiness and pain being so toxic, right? Yeah, um, that's like a- we we kind of we kind of like these stories keep getting told because it is kind of men asking themselves that question. It's like, why do we react this way to the world? Well, and that's the thing. Like his realizations at the end aren't especially deep, but when he's already in ankle deep water for most of the movie, like you know, getting to his knees wet yeah. is, is like is like a little bit growth. I mean, also, the other reason these stories keep getting tell, uh, told is because uh, white cis straight men have a lot more opportunities to tell stories, and uh, we like to tell stories about ourselves. But like, 100% that's, true. Yeah, it is, that's, there's some narcissism there, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I also, so I want to talk about a little bit the, the how show. Many episodes, yeah, how many episodes of the show? It got canceled after one season. It was on Hulu. I, think, I feel like people were mixed on it, and I never ended up watching it. It had some good reviews. Uh, I don't think it's a run out and see it show. I watched the first few episodes. Um, I uh, they do something interesting because I, I wanted to talk about the, the 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 sort of you know numbness male archetype thingy, and then I want to talk about the fact that Zoe Kravitz is cast as the lead yep. in the Zoe Kravitz is Lisa Bonet's daughter, which is a fun connection to this movie. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Um, that is a fun connection because uh, Lisa Bonet, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what and, Lisa Bonet's daughter. Yeah, <laughs> that's the connection. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it's fun. Zoe Kravitz is a good actor. Uh, I really like her. She's really like sympathetic. Um, as a performer, she has that. She's thing. good in. Uh, did you watch Big Little Lies? A little bit. Of she's it, a little bit. Of she's it. she has a bigger part in the second season, but I really like yeah. that show. Um, but she's the lead. She's Rob. Literally Rob. Um, I don't know what's if what's short for. Um, 
Robert. And so they kind of make the character more empathetic or sympathetic, I should say, because it's a woman and, and she's not quite doing the same performance that John Cusack is doing. However, there's a couple major drawbacks here. One is that Zoe Kravitz is not as funny as John Cusack. She's just yeah. not as a performer. She just doesn't have those those specific chops. She is, however, I think a more complex, dramatic performer. Mm-hmm. Um. And so she pulls off some stuff that John Cusack couldn't pull off, vice versa, whatever. The, that wouldn't really matter, except for the show, especially in the first two episodes, insists on, like, recreating scenes from the movie, hmm. um, which is exhausting more than cool. Um, there's the scene. What's the scene with John Cusack standing outside of? OK, so part of the part of the thing in the show is that uh, it's a woman um, she's dating a man who she's breaking up with in the very first scene. It's basically the first scene of the, the movie. Yeah. Almost exactly. Uh, she has Ikea Calyx shelves with records in it. That's the big mm-hmm. update. Um, <laughs> just have custom plywood shelves that you would have to have. It's funny that, like, when this movie came out, owning a record store was trendy. Like, you yes. Know, and now owning a record store, like that's that's why this movie does still feel like you could watch it because, like, of course they would sell records. That's what people buy if you're buying physical media. Yes, yeah, it's an interesting thing where like records were kind of on their way out because of CDs in the movie, and it kind of gives the movie an underdog quality. Yeah. Um, and when the book was written, I think that part was not really part of the story. Um, no, the records then, were, but it was 95. So records were, I mean, this is like, records were even more on their way out in 95. I feel. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. But wasn't the book written a few years earlier when records weren't kind of the underdog? No, 95. was when The, the book, book was written, written in 95? And this movie came out in 2000. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Yeah. So, okay. Um, but yeah, both record- were from, I mean, like, no, I... No one cared about records for the most part in that time besides, like, again, like, you know, f- fetishists, like, yeah. which as Rob calls... Yeah, but now if you watch this, it just feels like he owns a music store because what else yeah. What else would a music store sell? And I know this because I was a hipster in 2000 and – You were a hipster six, at 10 years old? It's, it's 2006 or so. Oh, okay. And 2007 – 2007 is when I would have gotten a car and like okay. um, my dad had a record player sitting in the basement. And I was like, cool. What the fuck is this? And then we played yeah. some records and we found some ELO records and I was like, this is cool. And then we – we went and looked for records at like like uh, thrift stores and stuff, and you were able to buy them for thirty cents a pop. Some of them were really scuffed up and yeah. shitty, and so you like literally just you just like put them in the trash next to the record pile. Like it was yeah. that kind of thing. Um, you could get really great records back then for nothing because nobody wanted them. And then like yeah. I think by the time I went to college, uh, it had become more mainstream, which is. Great for me because that means I can get modern records in 180 grams and beautiful, crisp audio quality. And there's review guides for like, hey, yeah. this is a really bad pressing. Don't fucking bother. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, re- the the concept is 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 similar but different in, yeah. you know, 2022 versus 2000. Um, well, yeah, it, it just it it was like oh yeah they're selling some like you sometimes they'd have cd's but it was all about records and it was because they were like collectors and fetishists like that was the whole point and now it's like it's it's like if like uh they made it about i don't know like the criterion collection if it was a movie equivalent yeah. and like 
obviously that is that is more well known today than it was then. It's like, oh, cool, shop that sells, sells like Blu-rays and Criterion stuff. I get that. Yeah. Like where, but that's that is the equivalent of what it would be, I think, for two thousand, where no one knew what the Criterion collection was. Yeah, or most people averaged it. So okay, so Zoe Kravitz is more is is more sympathetic, I think, because she's a woman and she's just as a dramatic performer. She's more sympathetic. It doesn't have that sort of gross stink of masculinity on it. Yeah. Also, misandry is fine. Like you yeah, can say well, yeah. you hate men, and that's just like a that's a that's a mature opinion to have. <laughs> like it's not like oh my god. Like someone says I hate women, you're like. Like calm down, you. Yeah. And I, I don't mean this to to mock the the double standard. It's not a double standard. There are good reasons why one uh, is completely okay and socially acceptable. But that that was that was the kind of weirdest weirdest thing about the gender flip. It's like, well, if she's going around saying that men are the worst and men have hurt her, people are gonna go, oh, yeah, yeah they have. They've hurt all of us in some way. Yeah, no. and, and it, but it allows you to focus on the loneliness of the show more. Um, yeah. She doesn't do a whole lot of, like, quote-unquote man-hating in the show. She does, like, towards, uh, like, a few episodes in. But it's mostly, like, her just being like, fuck, why am I dedicating myself to relationships at all I should go back to? Like, just one night stands every six months and then nothing else like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's more her fearing loneliness than her fearing men, which I think is like an interesting choice because it lets you focus on the core issue without all the distractions. And I think, yeah. High which, which is a big part of Rob's story too. And yeah. I think a lot of, a, a lot of the, the audience that watches the movie high fidelity right now is going to have some distractions from like Rob's loneliness is kind of covered up in a lot of the markers of a guy that you probably should hate. But the movie works really hard to make it clear that those markers are a, a facade that's part yes. of the story. Yeah, and the loneliness is still very, very present, which, like I said, is the part that I kind of glommed onto. Yeah. And a few other a few other just, like, notes of the show, if anyone's interested in watching it. Um, there's, like, there is basically a, a, a um, like, the two record store employees, like, one of them is basically Jack Black. Um, it, one thing I don't like, they set it in Brooklyn, which I think is really boring. Yeah. Like, there's so many shows that take place in New York. Like, yeah. set it in Milwaukee. What was yeah. the last show you watched that took place in Milwaukee? Like, set it in Sacramento. I don't fucking know. Yeah. Like, set it in, in a city that's not, like, the one of the four that people make shows in. We get like, it. You're area, walking LA, here. Chicago, you like the pizza pie. Like, <laughs> get over it. We're over it. And we someone, invented the new. We invented the New York guy accent, and we're over it. It's done. It's played out. It's, it's played out. We started it. We said it was over. Stop yeah. setting your shit in New York. If you live there, <laughs> move. <laughs> I'm just saying they get a lot yeah, every year. Been. Yeah. What? They get a lot every year. Yeah, I know they they can't they can't stop it. Um, and then uh, like yeah, set it set it in New Orleans. Like I don't know, set it somewhere where like there's not that many shows that take place there. Um, and then um, yeah, like it's 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 um it's it, I think it's ultimately like it, it very interesting, but watching it back to back with the movie definitely makes it suffer. Um, I'll probably end up watching more of it with Molly. Um, but. Um, it is kind of cool to see them inject like more people of color. There's more queerness in there. But the yeah. one note that I'll I'll say is like when there's sequences 
like like literally the Rob sequence where he's standing in front of the mirror, uh, sorry, standing in front of the window, and, and Catherine Zeta Jones is on like the third story and is standing in front of the window, clearly like in bed with a lover. Yeah. And and he says like Charlie, you bitch. <laughs> Let's work it out. Let's work it out. Yeah. It's a very funny line because it's like clearly just like a desperate man, and this is not fucking working for him. Yeah. Um. And she does the exact same line word for word, intonation for intonation, and she's just not like that kind of funny. Yeah. And or at least she's not that kind of funny in that show. Maybe she yeah. needs like a different show. I I I just haven't seen it yet. She's very new in her career. I don't want to discount her yet. Um, and like that's where the show suffers. Is you're like, but that line was funny in the original. Like, yeah, why, I also, I mean, John, we've talked funny? about we've talked about this all month. It's worth noting, like John Cusack. We we said it the first first week. Like he's a unique performer that I can't feel. I can't think of another like John Cusack type. Like he is very unique. And we said this about Gross Point Blank, which is like, hey, should you be identifying with this person? Well, when this type of part was played by Alec Baldwin, people were a little more fine with him dying in the romance. But it's John Cusack, and he's charming, and you want him to end up with uh with mini driver at the end of it and it's the same thing here like it rob on paper and correctly is a is you know a, a misanthrope a misogynist someone who like has thinks of people in the most shallowest terms possible but he's played by john cusack who's a very likable and funny individual which sometimes i think plasters over some of the worst tendencies of his character so that you miss it or you or you automatically default to like the worst defense of bad behavior with yeah but he's a good guy and we don't mean rob's a good guy we mean john cusack is a good guy and like that is if if this was cast with anyone else even in the year 2000 i think you end up with a different movie And, and that movie may have in more reflected bad on rob although i will say I saw this movie and one of my mom's friends uh, had uh, was was kind of a big movie person and she loved Gross Point Blank. So when this came out, I was like, oh, you know, John Cusack did a new movie uh, and the same writers of Gross Point Blank and has that same type of humor. I think you'll love it. And she watched it and she hated it. And she's like – she, I mean, she was in her, you know, I don't know, 40s or 50s at the time. And she's like, he's the worst. He is like selfish and self-centered and – you know, uh, like all these things. I'm like, what? Like, I didn't. I honestly was like, but it was so funny. Like, uh, like I didn't connect. So I mean, like, you were, you were hearing Aaron is so selfish and self centered. I know. Real adults who saw this were like, this guy's an asshole. <laughs> and and maybe like 17 year old kids uh, that it was easier for that stuff to paper over. The last thing I'll say before we go into the movie in more detail. Been a lot of ink spilled about this, but it is true. Like. Part of the other thing that I think people found a lot of connection to this movie is like is like a certain type of nerd that worked in these types of spaces, like you know uh, a record store, movie store, and stuff like that. Someone who worked in a in a um, in a video rental store for three years in high school. This was so specific to my circumstances in a way I hadn't seen in most other movies. Like Clerks, kind of like claims to be, and that's that you know that has some of the movie store stuff, but it's also just about working shitty jobs when you don't want to work. These people want to be at work. I wanted to be at work because I loved working at the movie store and I loved 
like being around movies and making lists of all the things I was going to watch and talking with my coworkers about our favorite, you know, genre here and stuff like that. Like that had a very true thing. I like I actually love the job to the point that by the time I was before I moved away from college, I had picked up enough shifts that I was working seven days a week there. And like so many of the specific experiences were so true to life, like if we had a, a new release that we had a ton of that wasn't selling, we would just put it on the TV and it would be gone. Like people would see it. They would ask, you know, like that scene where he's like, I'm going to sell, you know, five copies of the three EPs by the beta band. And he puts it on and people are like, what is that? Like that kind of thing was like so specific. You could rent any movie out by putting it on the TVs in the, in the video rental place. And people would be like, what's that movie? And they would rent it. Like it was, it was like clockwork. The, the kind of specifics of really like judging people's tastes and what they would rent and other things like that. I mean, it's, that's not the good part of it, but it was a natural thing. You became kind of film snobs of like what people were renting. And when they were renting Coyote Ugly, it was like, oh, Coyote Ugly. And when they would find, you know, the one copy of Thursday, which is a movie that you've only heard of or you and your film nerds and they rent it, you're like, you're – great choice like you know you wanted to make a connection because they had picked a cool movie that most people didn't know of so like that stuff again a lot of ink has been spilled over that connection but it, it did feel very true to life in a way that i at the time did not see as kind of in some ways sad and lame and what's so funny is that like even though they're snobs and music dicks and they take a lot of pride of judging people's t- tastes how i've grown into that actually is based on the line that Rob says to Jack Black early in the movie that he clearly doesn't ascribe to in most situations. But when they're um, when they're talking about the – when Jack Black brings in the CD and they have that, you know, the next track is going to be a little Latin loopy Lou or whatever and they are debating whether the, the Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels version or the Righteous Brothers and Jack Black's freaking out <laughs> saying, you know uh, – the, what's wrong with the Righteous Brothers? That's bullshit. And Rob goes, Barry, how can it be bullshit to state a preference? And it's like, yes, that is the right way to approach art. Someone likes something. It can't be bullshit. They're not lame because they like it. They like it. It's a preference. You can debate you know, the merits and talk about how you interpret a movie and whether you enjoy it. We've made a whole fucking podcast and hundreds and thousands of other people have as well. But like – Saying that someone is wrong for enjoying something or not enjoying something is such a waste of time. And I think it's so interesting that Rob puts that so succinctly in a movie where most of the time his character and everyone else's character is basically like deciding whether people are cool or good based on what they like. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, – and, and it's, it's, it's funny because like they're – like I was – I was as I watched this movie a bunch as a kid. I was eventually able to recognize that Rob is not a um aspirational figure. Yeah. Um. But like, I absolutely like aspired, and I think a lot of people do. You, I aspired all the way until partway through college to be like a guy who loudly argued about music and loudly yeah. argued about movies, and Movie, I aspired yeah. to be that guy. Um. And take it personally when someone doesn't like something you like and that that kind of thing. Um, and it's deeply, it's deeply exhausting. Um, it's the part about film Twitter that I find most um, egregious and gross. Um, is people being like, I liked a movie. And then there being a bunch of comments at the, or a bunch of replies at the bottom. Like, oh my God, this movie sucks so much shit. And you're like, what? Or like the thing that reviewers get all the time where they're like, you gave this five stars and you gave this two stars, you idiot. That was the laser blast Leonard Malton thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's an example. But yeah, that like um, even whether it's like good faith or bad faith, obviously there's a lot of bad faith. Like you just are getting paid off by Marvel, so you give the movies good reviews or something like that to 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 shame DC films because I'm a psycho. Like there there's that level, but there's also just that kind of like. Again, we've talked about this and we haven't done it for a long time and it's not worth spending too much time on it. But like the kind of idea of like rotten tomatoes are not a reflection of a bunch of critical consensuses that are rolled up into an aggregate. But instead, like this one is a 87 and this one is an 85. And like I'm going to use those to prove my point. That means that this movie is 85 good. And if you say this movie's better, I got news for you. That's 23 good. It's a 23 <laughs> good movie. So obviously I am like that. Yeah, that that thing of like it's not about preference. It's about being right or wrong with yeah. particular tastes. And, and I think it's you, so funny that a movie that's about people that think there is an objective right or wrong around tastes. There's a part where Rob says the perfect line. How can it be bullshit to state a preference? Yeah, and the it, it's it's one of those things that uh, <laughs> as we've I've gotten older, it's just gotten more and more pathetic because it's oh, so yeah. easy for someone to be like, like today, like today, two hours ago, I was saying, oh, I'm really excited for somebody's asking if I was excited for all the Star Wars stuff, and I was like, and or season two, maybe I don't know. Right now, like the only thing I'm actually excited about that's coming out in the near future is Dune two. And this person was like, how could you like Dune? It was so boring. Nothing happened. And I was like, I, I like for a second, I was like, yeah, I mean, the movie like tapped into something deep within me. Like the photography is gorgeous. That score is gorgeous. Like the texture of it actually makes me feel like I'm in an alien world. Like whatever. And he's like, yeah. oh my God, all of that sucked. And I was like, okay. I didn't get mad about it. I was just like, okay. Yeah. And I just kind of changed the subject and kind of like shifted my attention to someone else. And like, you can tell you can spot these people. You can spot. Yeah, the the how could wild. how could you like that? Which is like defend yourself. Yeah, which you is can spot like, spot these people out in the wild. And I wanted to be one of these people for a period of my life, and it's frankly very embarrassing. Yeah, I also think moving beyond. Well, I that, could have I been did, smiling and nodding for so many years. <laughs> uh, well, also I think just moving beyond the sense that there's good things to like and bad things to like, like, um removes you from snobbery like the idea like i i you know those kind of like big budget action movies that came out in the 90s and the 2000s that i thought i was above because they were big and popular and then you go back and you know in my late in my mid to late 20s and goes oh i had a ton of fun with this like not every movie needs to be fucking you know wild strawberries like you can have fun with a dumb action movie and like have a good time same thing with music like I only like, you know, songs that are Pitchfork or AV Club approved. And it's like, hey, you know what could be good? Pop songs. <laughs> some of those pop songs that are catchy are catchy and good. And it's okay that some of them I don't like. But that idea of, like, feeling like you're too cool to know what's on the radio or, like, oh, everyone likes this band. It's like, it's, uh, yeah, it's exhausting and it's also keeping you from things you may enjoy. So I think it's keeping you from engage the respectability thing keeps you from actually engaging with what you actually like and going on your own personal little rabbit holes and being like, I don't care if this movie has two stars on Letterboxd on average. I want to see more by this director. So I'm going to, I'm going to go seek it yeah. out. I don't care if people find this era of disco music embarrassing. I'm going to go seek it out and like the 
the the the the the hipster dom like to the point that like the the word hipster has very very little meaning i'm just using it as like a shorthand so yeah. we can get on to the rest of the movie um word hipster has kind of died off but like the idea of like these sort of uh media snobs it's like evolved so much now we're like uh Pitchfork used to include in their top 100 songs of the year, which is something I listen to every year, almost all the way through. I yeah. listen to a lot of their top albums of the year. I just think it's fun to see like what the other side of of the world is. Or just, as or as I, I've gotten older, it's like, oh, here's I haven't heard of 30 of these albums. And sometimes Great I'll find way to like, listen to some. yeah, yeah. Sometimes I'll find some albums I really love, and sometimes I'm like, I'm like. This is just like a a dude farting on a Casio for an hour. This sounds like music they play in like the bathroom of a sushi restaurant. What are we listening to? Um, Getting on the other side of that, too. I know you're going to go back and make a point, but being like like a band that you're like, well, this did get really good ratings. I (laughs) hate it, but it got really good ratings. And I I guess I'm going to listen to it because it's good. Um, Brutal. And... Um, accepting the fallibility of these things and that they're not actually objective yeah. is like obviously important, whatever. But like Pitchfork at some point started to embrace poptimism, right? Like the idea yeah. that like you need to you need to have a balanced diet and like you need to include like modern pop music and ex- and, and uh, give it the same amount of credence as you would. Yeah. And now like half, like not half, but thirty uh, percent of the their top albums and songs of the year list is like. Popular music, yeah. it's, uh, Olivia Rodrigo, and it's popular rap artists. And yeah, like, Beyonce was there. They went from like having like fucking Ariel Pink's Haunted Graffiti as the number one album to like, oh yeah, the new Beyonce album rules. She's Beyonce. She makes yeah, good music. That's yeah, it. yeah. Like that optimism thing sort of stuck in. And overall, it's good for the culture because it, it encouraged more people to just talk about your things that you love yeah. and, and not be embarrassed about it. Yeah. And that's kind of why the hipster thing disappeared, because eventually it was just like, everybody has weird interests, just stop being embarrassed about it. Yeah. Um, and now we just have the concept of assholes, which I think is way, <laughs> yeah. way easier to parse. Much easier to understand. Because you can just be like, yeah, man, like, I'm not an idiot. I I understand that, uh, you know, lyrically, this this album is, is, is not particularly punching new ground, but like the texture of this is really cool. Like, I love the production of it. Like, you, like. You're you're allowed to have these complex sort of diets, and yeah. uh, you don't have to constantly be um, assessing whether or not something is reputable. Um, yeah, there's a whole conversation that you and I you, you made a joke about the other day where, where Rob was naming um, top five songs for some one, one of his lists. Yeah, and, and uh, he's going through a list, and then uh, Jack Black is like. Oh, and you inc- you included a bunch of safe hits, yeah. and then at the end yeah. you included a uh, a recent established yeah. classic. Very yeah. pussy. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. The the idea that like it's not just like oh this is a oh yeah I said that to song. you and Ryan because you guys were saying like some very safe opinions about something. But again, I meant it ironically because it's yeah. like yeah, who cares? But like you you guys are saying here's things that are good. But you know actually that's but that's a good jumping off point too. I'm I'm very glad this movie was not made in 2007 because even though I love a lot of the bands that were like hipster big in 2007, like whether it's like. TV on the radio or Decemberist, like those are all bands that I legitimately still enjoy quite a bit. If that's if this was made in 2007, that would be all they fucking listened to. And it would like 
because there was that time of like I only listened to Pitch Bark Approved or AV Club or like these you know trendy publications, and there was a time where like it's all anyone was listening to, like the current, which is the the public radio station here. That's all they were playing. Now they do a really good like mix of different stuff, but it was like you would just hear the Hold Steady and then the Decemberist and then like an old Fugazi thing and stuff like that. And one thing I really like about this movie, Wine Glad was made in two thousand. It does embrace optimism, like. You know, Jack Black comes in playing Karina and the Katrina and the Waves and Walking on Sunshine, which is like a fun pop song from his perception, not like a lame novelty song. And like, yes, Rob's lists are a little basic, but he's like, hey, you know what's good? The Beatles. <laughs> like, you know, you know what else is good? Like The Clash. These are not like crazy indie stuff. Like they have a little bit of that with like, you know, Jesus and Mary Chain and Beta Band and some of and Bell and Sebastian and some of the more not like completely esoteric, but like indie sensibility type stuff in the 80s, 90s and stuff like that. But like they also just like pop music and mm-hmm. and I, like if this movie was made six years later, I think it would be impossible to watch because the only thing they would be talking about is fucking like you know the new arcade fire album or or this and they would just be like okay this is like set in a time like the the part of this that also feels timeless is like you could have the same music conversations that they're having today because those bands whether it's fleetwood mac or velvet underground or like they've kind of stayed within the cultural milieu but it's they're not so esoteric that's like yeah you had to know 2006 to understand what dirty projectors like everyone's talking about Bidiorca in this particular yeah. movie yeah. yeah like there's a couple name drops that they have that i'm like i don't know if kids know who bell and sebastian are but like yeah but like or like you know but like kids yeah i know who fleetwood mac are or whatever the the yeah. tv show um the tv show and the movie both have great soundtracks uh, it's all this, stuff basically that i listen to normally um again, i chicken of the egg with the movie but with the show it's at least somewhat original that we listen to similar stuff no this so this movie just like gross point blank introduced me to a bunch of um Good bands. This uh, I bought the soundtrack for this, and uh, mainly because I want like I like the music, but I also really wanted the Jack Black version of uh, "Let's Get It On." So I think that's why I bought the soundtrack on compact disc. Um, but that was uh, my first. They have two. Um, they have two Velvet Underground songs on that album. Um, and that was the first time I got into Velvet Underground, which is still one of my favorite bands today. And uh, they also had The Jam uh, on it, uh, which Town Called Malice, which got me into The Jam. And uh, the other big one, they had like Beta Band, which I still never really got into too much. Um, but this is going to sound, this is not like a new band, but like they include the Stevie Wonder song uh, that they have on the end. Um, I believe when I fall in love, it'll be forever. Mm. And it made me realize that Stevie Wonder could have good songs because again, like a lot of people, I knew Stevie Wonder from like 180 song they occasionally played on the FM radio. And like, it also kind of got me into checking out Stevie Wonder uh, albums, early ones, and like falling in love with like, you know, Sir Duke and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, hey, this guy that I thought was a lame old guy who had one hit, he makes really good music. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, 
the the idea that like you can never listen to Stevie Wonder songs or think they're cool because like a lot of his latter day works tainted him um, is like also a very childish idea. <laughs> like, well, it's also just like I, I think it's easy to be like I told you that about Talking Heads. It took me forever getting Talking Heads because the only song I knew was Burning Down the House and I didn't like it. I didn't like that song on the radio. And then I saw Stop Making Sense. And not only did I like Burning Down the House, I became obsessed with like Talking Heads. Like there is that thing of like. FM radio, especially in that time frame, was so brutal about we're going to only play this one song from that band over and over. And if you don't like that song, Bruce Springsteen, who's featured in this movie, is a really great example. I knew about Bruce Springsteen because the FM radio that I listened to in junior high obsessively um, played one song by Bruce Springsteen. It was The Streets of Philadelphia. A song I fucking hate to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, and then and then later they played the the Jerry Maguire song, Secret Garden, which I also fucking hate it. And I was like, hey, I hate Bruce Springsteen because these are the only two songs I've ever heard. And I've heard them a thousand times each because they just kept playing them over and over. And then, like, you know, I heard Born to Run sometime, like, in my mid-20s. I'm like, holy shit, this is so good. But it's yeah. like, it's it's easy to do that. Yeah. Um like, if you've never been at a bar a little too late and then um, Bruce Springsteen comes on at, like, 1, 1, uh, 1 a.m. and, like, a, the entire room just kind of lights up, like, it's a great yeah. feeling. A bunch of people who, like, listen to the song and dance with their dad, like, are, are yeah. suddenly vibing, right? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the the conversation that Jack Black says where he says, is it better to burn out or to fade away? Yeah. Is something that stuck with me because over the years I went from thinking it's an interesting thing like that. Artists should just stop making stuff when they know it's going to be bad. Um, and now that I'm older and I'm like, no, actually, like, they're a human being. Like, you can just yeah. stop listening to it, right? I mean, like, there there is there is something true about that. I saw a hilarious Onion article the other day which felt so relevant to me which is uh your favorite band's new album that you never got uh around to listening to turns 10 this year <laughs> like and i like i felt that there's so many bands that i used to buy albums for and then at some point like some album didn't connect with me and then like i just stopped listening like uh hold steady is a really great example i bought tickets to their show in september which will be my 10th time seeing them and i love their first five albums so much and then i heard their sixth album and i didn't like really like it all that much but now they've released three albums since then i'm like fuck i better listen to those new albums that i stopped listening to before the concert uh so i so i know the songs to some respects everyone has one like that like tv on the radio after their bassist died they put out uh one or two pretty meh albums not terrible but like i like those one with seeds on it Seeds. that was that that's the one that's like pretty meh oh Uh, i love seeds i thought that was their last after that was after their bassist died though yeah nine times of light was the last album that their bassist uh, participated in um but like that's not a great example for me i think my favorite example is right now i'm really trying having trouble figuring out whatever m83 is up to because m83 is a band that i've been listening to since i was 14 and i've seen them live a bunch and i adore m83 like they've been with me through so much um and right now, uh, he's just like text. He's been texturally off for like seven years, and I don't yeah. know. I don't know what he's been doing. Uh, uh, junk. Like I don't know. I feel like most of those bands that like I have a set of albums that I love, but like 
it's rare the band that you keep up with consistently for 20 years. I mean, even the ones I like name, like the Decemberists, like I think after the King is Dead, I just stopped kind of listening and like every pop band I listen to in high school now sucks. It started with the Shins. Now it's continuing through like Architecture in Helsinki. Like it's just like every band that I listened to when I was 14 to 16, like kind of sucks now. And like yeah. it's part of the process. But like, do I want them to sit at home and starve or all no. get office jobs? Like, no, keep making music. Like, do express yourself. Like, I don't need you to fuck off just because it's inconvenient for me that you have two albums on Spotify that kind of scare me when I look at them. So I didn't know this. The reason why uh, the last album TV on the radio made was Seeds. Yeah. I guess they haven't did they did they break up as a band? <laughs> it's uh, been 10 years. They have a few they have a few side projects and uh, um they have a few side projects but I don't I don't I don't know. I have no, I don't know if like Kit Malone has solo work. Uh yeah. Uh Peter, you want to talk more about high fidelity? Yeah, let's do. Yeah. Why not? Okay. So high fidelity, Garts, John Cusack, looking at the camera. Was I miserable because I listened to pop music, or uh, do I listen to pop music because I'm miserable? Uh, his girlfriend Laura, played by Aben, Ivan, Ivan Healy. Healy, um, who's not in much. People, what's funny is that the reviews and a lot of letterbox reviews of our friends think she is terrible in this movie, and I disagree. What? Yeah. Uh, she wasn't in much. Uh, she is in another Stephen Frears movie who directed this, did Dangerous Liaisons, um, uh, got connected with it. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, got connected with it after John Cusack, Steve Pink, and his other writing partner. Um Joined Stephen Frears wanted to work with John Cusack again after they did a great movie, The Grifters, together, which was his follow-up to uh, Dangerous Liaisons. Um, so it adds a little bit, bit of prestige, I think, to the whole uh, to the whole affair. <laughs> Stephen Frears is a very good director, uh, and uh, uh, not that George Armitage and Gross Point Blank isn't or Cameron Crowe isn't, but uh, this this is kind of a big get for them uh, as he was he was. Doing a lot of uh, different movies, but he really wanted to work with Cusack again. Anyways, yeah, uh, the reviews were kind of like, um, she's not good and has no charisma. And I think she's like incredibly funny and charming. And I really like, you know, the first half of the movie, you don't get to know her at all. And you're only seeing her for these brief interactions for, with Rob because the whole story, Rob is in every scene. He, uh, even when he's not in the scene, he is. It's an imagine, you know. It's a fantasy sequence that he's narrating and things like that. And uh, so you don't really get to know Laura in the early parts of the movie, but when you start seeing them in their relationship in the back half, she's she's funny. Like she, you can see why he likes her, and you can also see why their relationship has lasted that wrong. Like she's very calm. She's somewhat non-judgmental. She understands him. She doesn't mind fucking with him or pushing him when he, she feels like she needs to. Like, I think she's, like, 
again, I think she's really good. And I like having someone that was somewhat of an unknown at the time, I think also helps. Like, if the main character of this movie had been played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, I think you end up with, like, a different type of movie than you do by having someone who, at the time, I think this was her first her first movie. But anyways, I think she's good. I, um, yeah, I don't think she's bad at all. She has a uh, remarkably, like, uh, accessible energy. Yeah. Where she's, like, someone that's clearly been through some eras of her life and is very <laughs> yeah. tired of Rob. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but anyways, that was the kind of consensus at the time. This movie was very well-reviewed. 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Roger Ebert gave four stars. Um Weird. That's not objective facts Weird. to hold over people's heads, but it is that is true. Um so yeah, so she he she leaves, she breaks up and she yells out, like if you if you really wanted to mess me up, you should have got to me earlier, which is a very funny line to yell as your girlfriend is breaking up with you and leaving. Um he sits down, turns the camera, and he says here's my top five breakups at all time. And he starts going through his first breakup with a girl in eighth grade who they made out a couple times. And all of a sudden the next day uh, she, she was making out the third day. She was making out with someone else. Alison Ashmore, I believe was her name. And the other thing about this movie is that that scene is helpful for a couple reasons. One, it kind of talks about the way that Rob sees women. He says one minute they weren't there, at least in any form that you could use them, which kind of implies he wasn't a kid who had male and female friends in elementary school, which were definitely those kids that were like, I hang out with the boys. Yeah. I do not hang out with girls. Girls are gross, which is definitely a certain type of person. Um, I was not that type of person. Um for a while in elementary school, I think I had more friends that were girls than were boys. But, like, we all knew the the cootie boys who, like, only wanted to hang out. It's it's telling you that information about Rob. And then one day, as he says, they grew breasts and they were everywhere. When he reached, you know, sexual attraction, then he started to view them as existing. Which, again, I think is such a good – like, I missed that when I was younger. But it's a good encapsulation of the way that Rob views women. Also – when this girl, who he had no actual connection with, is making out with someone else, they have that scene where his friend calls her a bitch. And Rob is incensed by that. And I think that's also telling you that, again, non-betrayals are seen as personal attacks and betrayals. Rob doesn't say it, but it's in that movie for a second. And then he t retells that story as like, yes, that we only dated technically for six hours, but that one story is the story of all my relationships just expanded, which, again, is telling you everything you need to know about Rob. And it's told somewhat charmingly, and, I, and it's sort of funny that he's flashing back and you're kind of like, what is this movie? But it also is a really a mission statement. He didn't see women as people. He got sexually attracted to them. He wanted them. He says that explicitly in retelling the story. And the second they don't want him – there's someone along to tell them they're, you know, they're bitches or they're terrible or stuff like that. And, like, that is the story we're going to see repeated over and over. And it's kind of funny watching this as a 40-year-old and being like, oh, they really are framing up the theme in a way that I think is easier, easy to miss when you're 17 years old. Yeah, yeah. It, the um, Because <laughs> when you're a little bit older, you can kind of catch, like, the sort of, like, winking irony of him talking about, like, being a child and getting rejected and, like, yeah. a ch a another child calling, um, a ch his friend <laughs> calling another child a slut. Like, oh, slut. That's what he says. Yeah. yeah. You can catch, like, the winking irony there, right? 
Um, yeah. Because it's, like, funny, because it's, like, literally children, and it's, like, it's yeah. kissing with no heavy petting whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and uh, not that that would make her a slut either way, but you know what I'm saying. Um, it's it's funny because it is so innocent. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, like, as we go through the story, like, he kind of jumps through the stories pretty quickly. Like, he, yeah, he kind of, and it kind of, like, each story at some point in it makes Rob look pathetic. And, yeah. f- and funny and silly. And I think that when you're a kid, you can catch that as sort of like a guy being a little bit self-deprecating yeah. to be charming. Hey, I don't know what I'm doing all the time either in these things. <laughs> but the movie is sending you signals like, yeah. you know, Rob is is um, perhaps uh, there's other reasons to break up with Rob <laughs> other than yeah. simply, um, you know, you found a better thing. Yeah. Uh, the next uh, girl he tells the story about is uh, high school. Uh, this is also where one where Rob is just a an asshole. Like again, this is very early in the movie. Um, uh, Penny Hardwick is her name, and uh, he wanted to sleep with her. Notes that he was not interested in all of her nice qual- qualities. All he wanted to do is touch her breasts, and then sometimes he would try to touch her between the legs and. Eventually, he broke up with her because what's the point? It's not going to go anywhere. Um, and like, you know, like, just underline the circle. Hey, what an asshole. Especially when we, and then he he says, then I find out that she slept with Kenny on their, or, or slept with someone else on their first date. Why didn't you want to sleep with me? And stuff like that. That'll be very important later for, I think, another movie that is like ringing a gong at what an asshole Rob is that I think because it's kind of funny, you can miss it at the at if you I don't want to just blame it on a certain age if you uh, but I I probably missed it a little bit um and then he tells the story of Charlie who's played by Catherine Zeta Jones um that uh, girl that he met in college that he was obsessed with and spent the whole relationship feeling like she was too good for him and he was an imposter he had imposter syndrome and I mean, every he doesn't get into it because again, he's telling the story. But everything we know about Rob probably means that he was terrible to be with, as he constantly is feeling like he is uh, not worthy or going to get found out, or she's going to leave him because uh, he is difficult when he is uh, self obsessive. And uh, yeah, but they dated for two years. He was obsessed that she was going to leave him for a hot person in one of her photography or art classes. And then she eventually leaves him for a hot person in one of his art and photography classes. Uh, It also uh, uh, highlights his willingness to sit outside in the rain and yell at people's windows, which becomes also a recurring theme in the movie. Uh, It is. uh, It is. I think why this movie pairs well to say anything. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> it's because that is the like toxic uh, counterpoint to the say anything moment, which is um, naive and adorable and innocent. Um, but it's like I just want to get my message a, across. Yeah, but if you did it as an adult, people would be like, "What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Leave my house!" <laughs> yeah. Um, he then I'll tell the fourth story, um, even though he we get that gets cross cut, which is. Um, Played by Lily Taylor. I forget the character's name. But basically two people that met that were like, we're not going to be in a relationship. They both were burned out by a relationship. They end up hooking up. And then eventually she actually meets someone real and kicks him out. And he's he's using these to say, how come I always get left in relationships? His fifth story, which kind of gets to at the end of the first act, 
he he realizes was just something to keep Laura off the top five, but she's actually in the top five. We'll get into the story of Laura in a second. Meanwhile, through that, you have that's, him that's go classic to- what we were talking about with Rob, like him just yeah. like denying that she's meaningful to him. Yeah, yeah. You should, if you wanted to mess me up, you should have got to me earlier. And then recognizing that obviously this person who I lived with for five years wasn't me and that I'm like obsessed over is a meaningful part. Um, we also get to know he owns a record store. He lives in Chicago, uh, Championship Vinyl, and he works with Jack Black and Todd Luizzo. Um, that's not their characters' names. Uh, both nerds who, as he says, I hired these guys to come in for part-time three days a week, and they just started showing up every day. That was four years ago. <laughs> you know, Jack Black. This is uh, – so the thing about Jack Black is I actually really like him in this role. I loved it when I came out. He was praised up and down. Jack Black was kind of like – I didn't know Tenacious D or Mr. Show at this time. I found out about that a couple years later when the first season of Mr. Uh, Show hit, hit DVD. Um but, uh, yeah, I mean, he – the other thing that a lot of people who didn't know Tenacious D and didn't know Jack Black from their HBO stuff, they didn't know he could sing. So the ending of this when he can sing really well and does a good performance, it's a surprise to Rob and that's kind of a fun climax to the movie. It was also a surprise to almost every reviewer who saw this movie and thought it was a great trick to have this guy be musically talented where now it's kind of funny the idea that anyone would be surprised that Jack Black can sing a fucking song. But – yeah, he was kind of a, a, a underground alt comedy guy, and this was a huge breakout role for him. Um, he is playing Jack Black at like max. I feel like the Jack Black hype train almost immediately crashed and burned after this movie when he started when he was starring in anything and everything. Um, a couple things good like School of Rock and a lot of terrible garbage like um, uh, like uh, like uh, uh, Shallow Hal and. There's that, like, I think it's called, like, Greed or something. I forget what it is. But, like, a lot of those terrible movies. I feel like the Jack Black train has come back around to being like, oh, he's a nice, awesome guy who cares about the right causes. And he's funny and enthusiastic and stuff like that. Um, But I do feel like this was like, Jack Black, next movie star. And then immediately everyone going, we don't like him. He's very annoying. And And then 15 years later, people being like, yeah, Jack Black. Redemption story. I had, yeah, I had my Tenacious D moment. I lo- I loved, loved, loved Mr. Show and still love yeah. Mr. Show. Like, I never quite turned on Jack Black, but there was definitely a moment where one of my friends was like, there's a new Tenacious D album. And I was like, neat. I just need the one. Have your, ha- have your good time. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't need to be a part of that. Yeah. Um, uh, and and I, 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 he's one of those guys and he's in that weird, like, Brendan Fraser, like that, like whole camp of guys were like, they were indelibly part of our childhoods. Yeah. And then they did a bunch of very bad movies and it's like, oh my God, they need to have a comeback. They need to have a comeback. But instead it's mostly that they exist now as like fake elder statesmen. Yes. I mean, not to the same degree, not the same kind of thing, but like even Michael Keaton, it was like Michael Keaton's back after Birdman. Like, you know, even if you hate Birdman, at least Michael Keaton's back. And then now he's looks bored in the new Flash movie. Like it's sometimes you just you don't get to have the redemption arc that you deserve. Right. Yeah. Think, Think about the fact that Matthew McConaughey, he had a short redemptive arc. It was like true detective. Yeah. And then he did Dallas Buyers Club. And then after that wall-to-wall garbage yeah even dallas uh, buyers club maybe included in that garbage i don't know I mean, it's Not a terrible gonna... movie but people i mean people liked it 
Um, I mean, I, people liked it for a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to. So, so yeah, uh, what's funny is that even though, like, Peter, I got the sense from your text that you found Jack Black very annoying in this movie, which I don't. I still think, like, he's playing annoying. Everyone finds annoying. him. Inc- yeah, I find him charmingly annoying. Like, But I think I do think he's really funny. What I have come around on, you said it best. You said, I didn't think Todd Luizzo was funny at all as a kid. Like, compared to Jack Black? Are you kidding? And now I find him so goddamn funny with every eye look and every nervous twitch. He is so funny in this movie. Um, and I hope we get I hope we get a Todd Luizzo redemptive redemption <laughs> arc because he was clearly overpowered, but his character is tougher and he plays him so well. Yeah. It's like yeah, the quieter, less abrasive. Yeah, yeah. Nerd. Where he's like he kind of lets people walk all over him, but like he knows what he wants, and he uh, <laughs> keeps trying to establish friendships, and then he ends up like happy in the end with like a girlfriend. Like he ends up like finding some semblance of he ends up building social, um, like actual like social con- connections with people outside of this fucking weird little weird yeah. little toxic like uh, yeah. hovel where they just yell at each other about the beta band all day or whatever. <laughs> I. Yeah, I I like <coughs> I like when he is arguing with Jack Black about the name of that like the number four with a smile or whatever, and like it just perfectly captures their like Todd knows that he's right, like and Jack Black is convinced that he's right, and they're the way that they argue back and forth with him like over explaining why like well it's a reference to a menu item like he's very knowledgeable he knows this stuff and like. He's he's not going to back down immediately, but he's he's gracious enough to be like I'm more of an introvert that I'm not going to aggressively push you off. And he, I I just love the like you know, but I guess I could be wrong after he knows all these like specific facts about why it's this title, but he still is you know deferential and knows who he's arguing with. And then Jack Black is you can be wrong and are. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's such a great little encapsulation i also like the like these three even though they make their jokes and they argue they do seem to really like each other like when when uh todd comes back in and says that he has a date with anna jack black makes a couple of jokes like anna anaconda like you know blah 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 but they also seem really happy for him like jack black especially like you know that is so great like you know and I, I like that. I like that they are not – like they're dicks in the way that they are like fetishists and persistent about like the things they like and they get into silly arguments about that. And sometimes they get frustrated with each other. But they do like – you know, t- uh, Todd Luiso is like really sad and trying to help when Rob breaks up with Laura and like, you know um, – and and like there's a there's a clear line that Jack Black crosses a couple times um, <laughs> with the way when Laura like oh I'm sorry you know like when Laura's dad dies and stuff like that that everyone looks like okay you've gone way too far with this and like I like that like they're not they're not like douche bros that are constantly being dicks to each other they are abrasive personalities who actually do care about each other yeah yeah like. Um, at the beginning, you think that, yeah, at the beginning, you think that they're just stuck together and they're yeah. just like, well, this is where I work. And so I have to yeah. take the abuse of Jack Black. And by the end, it's like, you realize that like the, that like fire and ice kind of thing is like yeah. part, the, the way their friendship functions. Yeah. Um, 
and and they all have like you know Barry Barry uh, Jack Black's character is their George Costanza like yeah they, he's he's he, he they there's a clear line that he's willing to cross that other people in the friend group won't but um they and also like, and they're like find it a little entertaining that he's just their ridiculous friend who like gets into trouble doing very basic things yeah and, but then it, but then they also like know that like very often they like Rob very knows uh, very often he has to tell him to shut the fuck up I know or, or <laughs> shake his shake his shirt which is so funny like uh, he knows he's not gonna win a fight with Rob but like the shirt is vintage and if you stretched it I will fucking sock your nose <laughs> like, <laughs> just completely impotent. <laughs> having a response is very funny uh so anyways um so yeah we get to know that there's a lot of great scenes in the record store um well, we can pause on that there's there's the um no one's coming in there's random busy days and you kind of get to know them as like snobs and people who are argue they have a friend lewis who comes into the store who um you know, like they, they're like, oh, I'll buy that record. And they're jerks to some people. Famously, there's a scene where a, a guy comes in to buy um, a Stevie Wonder song. Um, uh, I just called to say I love you. And Jack Black's addict to him. He's like, you know, yeah, we we have it. And he's like, great. Can you sell it to me? No. <laughs> you know, because your daughter has terrible taste. Do you even know your daughter? There's no way she likes that. Oh, no. Wait, is she in a coma? And he's like, by the end, he gets him to be like, you know what? you and you know storms off to which like jack black gives a bow and rob is like barry i'm fucking broke like yeah um in but, the in the tv show this interaction happens over a copy of a michael jackson record and they're talking mm-hmm. about like well how canceled can someone be if like you know like the the producer on this album did amazing work like are we supposed to discount and then like they're like are you just is your your um, your morality convenient for the cost of twenty dollars or whatever? <laughs> like it's it's like they turn it into a different thing in the in the TV show, but in the in the movie, it's particularly gro- like like irritating and gross because he's just asking for a lame album, and yeah. they can get money for it. Maybe they have a copy because they buy records by the lot. They're not record stores don't buy records individually like that, right? Like, well, Jack. I mean, Jack Black does say, which is not a defense of him in this moment, is that we didn't have the album anyways, and so he's like, you know, he wanted to buy one album which we didn't even have, and then he was going to never come back in the store. So his thing was like, I can be a dick to this person, um, which I guess in the TV show they probably had the Michael Jackson album, uh, but. Uh, yeah, so eventually, though, like I said, he – Rob is also talking to Laura and, like, going and being like – he doesn't know where Laura went. Eventually, he's talking to Joan Cusack, who's very funny in this movie, and keeps saying how she's not going to take sides. And, like, I'm just not going to take sides on both of your friends. And keeps saying yet, too, which is very funny. Like, I'm just not taking sides yet. Like, And, and she eventually will find a reason to take sides. But he, she reveals to Rob that, like, she likes her and Laura together and much better than this Ian guy. And that's when it takes him on this, like, what fucking Ian guy and, like, realizes that their former upstairs neighbor um, is who she's with right now. That's where she's living. He had moved out six weeks ago. And, uh, you know, and so he starts obsessing Ian, uh, Ian Ray to his friends. <laughs> um, Ian Raymond is his name is played by Tim Robbins. And he's so goddamn funny. 
uh, in this movie. John, John Cusack and uh, Tim Robbins are, are friends in real life. They show up in a lot of their each other's movies um, since they started in 1989's Tape Heads together, um, which is a movie I haven't seen and I think doesn't exist based on how limited the Wikipedia information mm-hmm. uh, is. But yeah, he plays a guy with, you know, like listens to trendy world music, long ponytail, tons of rings. He's a conflict resolution person who speaks about peace and love. He is the anti-Rob, right? He is everything that like Rob as a character hates. And so he now what's interesting here and also speaks to Rob as a character again. Rob is not aggressively trying to get Laura back until he finds out that she is dating someone else and living with someone else. And then he becomes obsessed with calling her, being around her, showing up outside her door, mainly because, again, of the she's someone else has my property or something like that. Like there's a lot of very toxic masculine ideas thrown here. It's played as a joke, as an obsessive person throwing things in. But again, seeing this through the prism of a, of you know, 40-year-old and not 17-year-old, like, he he really doesn't try to get Laura back until she's with Ian. And then that's when he starts obsessing, fantasizing about them having sex. And it's like, congratulations, Laura. Now you're in my top five because he pictured her or realized she was with another guy. That kind of opens up like what I – this movie doesn't necessarily typically have a three-act structure, but I would say like if the first act is him telling about these relationships, the second act is him going back and revisiting all these old relationships to find out why he is destined to be left, why he got dumped because he thinks these are all heartbreaks of the women's or the girls' doing. And, um, and then also kind of obsessively pursuing Laura to – leave Ian or to understand has she had sex has he had sex she had sex with Ian yet so she goes back and start, he starts going back through his list of be- uh, biggest breakups first one finds out that the girl who kissed him on the bench ended up marrying that second guy kissed me on the bench married Kevin um and so he's like, that's destiny. That has nothing to do with me. I shouldn't be obsessed with that breakup because if she married the second guy she kissed meant to be with him. Then uh goes and meets Penny and I think this is also a fulcrum of the movie. This scene is a fulcrum of the movie rests on one that my mom's friend called out specifically at like what a terrible person Rob is and how it was impossible to identify with him, <laughs> which is she sees Penny and she's a movie critic. And then finally he launches into like all these people that he wanted to be with that didn't want to be with him. And he asks Penny why she wanted to sleep with this Kenny guy as opposed to to him. And she, in a in a really, I think, well done scene, is like, "Are you like, are you kidding me? Like, I wanted to sleep with you, but I wasn't ready to sleep with you when I was sixteen. And when you broke up with me for to use your charming, you know, uh, expression, being tight, I ended up sleeping with the next guy, and I was too tired to fight him off. And it wasn't rape because I said yes, blah blah blah. But like." It wasn't far off because I was so sad because you rejected me for not being ready to sleep with you. And she storms off. But like – and there's a point where then Rob goes, oh my god, she's right. And you think he's about to have an epiphany that what an asshole he is, right? Instead, he goes, that's right. I broke up with her. 
that's another one I don't have to worry about when she tells <laughs> this heart-wrenching story. And I do think that's a fulcrum of like, again, at it, it's kind of a it's a it's played a little bit as a joke because you think obviously this is a heart-wrenching story that uh maybe her name is Penny. Yeah, I think it's Penny. Um um told and he's going to realize the errors of his way or that he really hurt this person and want to make amends. Instead, it's just like, oh, yeah, I did that to her. I don't have to worry about that then because I'm trying to figure out why people reject me. And like it's played as a joke, but it's obviously – like I said, my mom's friend was like – it's called out that scene of like what an unredeemable asshole. This person says that you were like pressured me into sex and then broke up with me and made me hate sex because of – like, what a fucking asshole you were. And instead of having any, like, empathy or sadness or fault or guilt in that moment, he's like, yep, check it off the list. I guess she didn't break up with me. That was all me. I won that one. And, like, that – yeah, that's like if if you didn't realize that Rob was an asshole, that's a, that's a scene that's playing it really big to let you know – this is not necessarily – all these women escaped Rob, not the other way around. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. It, it's um, it's a nice realization halfway through because you realize it a little bit earlier than Rob does. <laughs> yeah. Um, and especially on rewatch, uh, you're like, all right, we know Rob is the problem here. Like he's the common denominator. <laughs> yeah. Um, but – you catching up with it a little bit earlier than Rob is really nice because when that that humbling and then growth arc happens in like the third act, yeah, you kind of like believe it, right? Because like yeah, you spent a little bit of time like understanding that like he's the problem. He's spending a little bit of time just being like, oh, oh shit, like these are all the ways that I've erred, and he keeps putting the sins on the back of of these women. Um, when in reality, it's like. Like, uh, especially with, like, the Catherine Zeta-Jones character, he's like, yeah, she's just not very, like, nice. Like, she's just kind of, <laughs> she's just kind of, like, mean and, like, not shallow. And, like, she's just, like, there's a lot in, in, in her that I don't like in myself. Like, she doesn't mm-hmm. like when other people talk. Like, she, she's just kind of uh, wrapped up in herself. And that sort of narcissism is, is, is weirdly like a mirror for him. But he realizes that it's fucked up that he turned her into a mirror for his own self-worth because she's his, her own person with her own problems and her own social group. And she's been just fine without him. She continued to exist after she exited yeah. his life. <laughs> yeah. I do think he learned something from Charlie, but he very obviously doesn't learn something from this horror story that Penny tells, tells him of what her life was like after Rob and the fact that he is like unrepentant. I do think if you were to say like, Hey, I actually don't root for Rob in any capacity. And I'm sad that he ends up with Laura at the end. Cause he's a monster. I think this is the scene that you can easily hang your hat on and go. Yeah, I get that. Um, oh, yeah. But you're right. It is true that with Charlie, which he eventually gets to here. Um, he he does see himself reflected like he he you can see why he was he's almost the she is the equivalent of what he was talking about with like um 
uh, caring about someone's interests as opposed to who they are as a person. Because he cared about – he was in love with her and talked about how she had – talked about art and music and politics and all these other things. And we shared the same opinions and we shared the same tastes. And then like, you know, 10 years removed, he goes back and sees that and he goes, oh, like a person who like doesn't care about any of these things um, – is a problem. And that's when he kind of like becomes a little bit more repentant to go back to Laura. Like I do the, – the movie doesn't spell it out explicitly, but I think it's very clear. Like he leaves feeling like how had I missed all this? This person is shallow. This person only cares about themselves. This person does not – is not interested in other people. And like there does seem to be some glimmer of realization. We also find out why – this is where he tells the story around this time of why Laura and him broke up and why Joan Cusack eventually goes – Hey Rob, you fucking asshole! <laughs> Storms out of the store. She, she has knows. perfect comic timing. Uh, Joan Cusack she, is perfect comic she, timing. She is so she good. She just stands there for a second. Yeah. Hey Rob, that is shocking. That is shocking. <laughs> it's also great because we flash so back. Good. She's so good. It's so great too because we flash back to her being told the story by Laura. And she goes, that's it. And she gets up to leave. And Laura's like, sit down while I tell you more of this story. But when we see her run into the record store and say, hey, Rob, you fucking asshole. She's wearing the same outfit. So she clearly did leave that diner, go to the record store and tell Rob he's an asshole. I also love the scene um, at the funeral where she's clearly talking about. Uh, you know, it hurts a lot to put all of your eggs in one basket and have that basket consistently disappoint you to Laura's sister while John, while Rob's right there. He's like, you know, you don't need to talk about me like you're not there. I know you're saying – he's like, I'm actually not talking about you. I'm talking about Laura, <laughs> which is so goddamn funny. She's so good in all of these movies, but I think this one's my favorite. Um but uh, yeah, so he – you find out that he – of course, he was – we, we finally are hearing this, the side of the story of why Laura eventually left. He was a jerk. He – like he cheated on her. He um, – while she was pregnant, even though he didn't realize it, um, she ended up getting an abortion. He found out about it later. It sounds like then he – even though he says it's a brief and ill-advised lapse into self-righteousness – like, I don't know how brief means when she got an abortion. Clearly, she he chastised her for what right do you have to abort my child after all of this? But like, even if he says it's ill-advised, he you it's clear that he did it, which is like insult upon insult upon injury upon injury. Uh, he borrowed money that he hasn't paid back. And he's been saying that he's not happy and looking around for something else. Like, you know, you're like, oh. Of course, of course, this guy who we've seen be an asshole was a asshole over a long period of time to Laura as well. Um, but Laura's dad eventually dies. Um, and uh, as all dads do someday. Um, and Laura, like she, he's been she they keep meeting. They start having more friendly interactions, even though he is kind of stalking her. Like there's the fun scene where um she goes back to his apartment to pick up more stuff and she's laughing about the list where he picked and he wrote down his top five jobs that he wanted to be. Um, if time, money and and experience were no issue and one of them was an architect, something he didn't really want to be. And she's like, wouldn't you rather be a record store owner? 
than an architect? And he's like, yeah, I guess so. And she goes, okay, I'm going to cross off architect and put one of your top five jobs as a record store owner. And it's like very cute and charming. And I think it's the first scene in the movie where you're like, oh, I can see why these two worked in a relationship because everything else is kind of sad. It's a really genius scene to have something like that before they get back together. But after the funeral, she says she's so tired right now that she just wants to be with Rob and they might as well go back together. And you think that's going to be the end of the movie, but then it kind of propels it into this third act where he immediately starts to question whether they should have got back together, which again is what we've seen throughout these movies. He got what he wanted. The chase (laughs) is over. Maybe I am kind of bored in this relationship and I'm looking for something else. And meanwhile, he also takes a little bit of a risk, which is kind of prodded on by Laura. And he signs these skate punks who keep stealing from his store, who are very funny. Every scene with them is hilarious. They made an album. And I love the scene when he walks into the record store and hears this this music. And Barry and uh, – sorry, I forget Todd Luizos character's name are sitting and they're just like rubbing their heads and looking frustrated and rob's like what is this he's like it's vince and neil who are vince and neil those two skate punks like they made this yeah it's uh it's really fucking good (laughs) like just so angry that these assholes made good music and he says i'm gonna produce your record um and it's like he's he's taking a leap. He's going out of his comfort zone to do something that he clearly wanted to do. Laura supporting him. But also he gets a chance to be interviewed by this uh, journalist and starts, you know, she's she's good looking. And he starts making a mixtape for her and starts becoming obsessive. And Laura, he's embarrassed by it. But Laura's just kind of like, you know, this I'm back together with him just for the heck of it so we can hang out. But I don't have a lot of big faith. And that's when he has that scene where he's where he talks to the camera about am I going to keep just jumping from relation to, to relationship and follow my gut every time I get bored or something like that? And he gives the speech to her where he asked her to marry Laura and saying, you know, it's like the one part of personal growth he has to realize that women are people where he's like, you know, talks about like um, – that I basically have been making fantasies out of the women that I've dated and I get annoyed when they are real people. He uses the underwear that I I thought that every girl I dated would have fantastic lingerie and always be sexy and then I find out they have these like worn cotton panties and he's like, the new women in my life have those too but I don't have to see it because it's not part of the fantasy because I'm expecting them to be – which like again – it's a, it's a realization moment of like, hey, women are human beings and people who have, you know, they're just like anyone else. They're not men's fantasies, uh, but it's his little part of personal growth. And he's saying that, like, we have a relationship that has challenges and ups and downs. And I'd, I'd rather commit to that relationship than, than to keep going after these fantasies of women that don't exist. Yeah, it's a really interesting scene because when it begins, you think he's breaking up with her. And yeah. you're like, fuck, fucking Rob, like, why <laughs> did you do this? Like, yeah. um, you think he's breaking up with her, but he's actually, like, breaking up with the old version of himself. Like, he's actually, yeah. like, in, in a weird way, it's like a breakup scene with the old Rob, right? Like, he's like, I am realizing that I need to commit to something. Like, I need to commit to the mistakes that I yeah. made. I need to commit to the mistakes I've made in the past being mistakes um, and not like just part of who I am. Um, yeah. I think that's like, as we take it to like the final moments of the movie, I think that it's very beautiful that like 
this is a movie that embraces the uncertainty of life. We talked about it a lot in the Say Anything episode. Um, this is a movie that embraces the uncertainty of life and the ending embraces the uncertainty of life because it plays a, a, a love song and Rob is like, could like happy? And he's like, I think I know how to be happy. And it's like through like serving the relationship rather than serving myself. Yeah. Serving he said he's going to make a mixtape of Laura, not of the stuff he wants her to like that he likes, but of songs that he knows Laura likes, which is again, seemingly minor. Right. It's still, it's like, oh, I should do things for my partner that they like, not that I like that I want them to also like. Yeah. But it's, 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 it's a moment of growth. I also like that Laura doesn't accept the proposal. Like she laughs and kind of says that, like, like, do me a favor. You don't seem like the best bet in the world. Two days ago, you were making a mixtape for that journalist that was, and he's like, yeah, but I'm done with that. Like, and she's like, okay, well, it's noted and appreciated. Like, you know, she's she's not like, oh, yes, yes. I You know, she she has a very realistic sense of what this relationship is. And even though the story's not told from her perspective, it doesn't like it. I think it treats her character with respect by her being like, OK, I'm glad that's where you're at right now. And hopefully maybe that means we'll continue to develop this relationship. And yeah. Um, and then the ending scene is they have a concert for the record release party. Uh, Jack Black, in a very funny scene, he has had, a, I guess, a sign on the door forever to uh, inquire within about starting a band with him. And after four years, someone does. And Rob does not want him to play. And he keeps saying, Our, we're, we're sonic fucking death monkeys. He's like, this is going to be terrible. And then they play to end it a Marvin Gaye song, uh, Let's Get It On. Um which uh, was now legally distinct from uh, Ed Sheeran's Thinking Out Loud as of today, the court's rules. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, uh, but it turns out that he can sing and they do a really fun cover of it and everyone laughs and dance and then it goes to the next one. Which again, apparently, when this movie came out, was a shock. This guy can sing. Tenacious D played the premiere of this movie, which is very funny. Like, time yeah, I saw wise, that. Timeline wise, it just doesn't quite make sense to me that Tenacious D was out here playing gigs, but like, yeah. So Jack Black's been doing it for a long fucking time. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think I think that the end of the movie is 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 very pretty, and it, and the fact that they chose a Marvin Gaye song and um, a song that which, a lot of people are very sick of, and the fact yeah. that like Lisa Bonet is in this movie, and there's a scene, there's a scene where Rob goes. Is that Peter fucking Frampton? Oh, yeah. I used to hate this song. Like, now I um, Because Marie DeSalle, which is uh, Lisa Bonet's character, there's a whole thing we could have talked to about, like, he is trying to make sure that um, Laura hasn't slept with Ian, and then once he confirms that Laura hasn't, he goes out and sleeps with Marie DeSalle, and again, this is my possession, but I can do whatever I want, and, you know, pretty, pretty standard over-the-line uh, asshole behavior, I would say both in the way that he thinks about it and the way that he uh, uh, has no double standard for himself. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, exactly. And I, I think that it's like pretty beautiful that that is, that has this, um, this song at the end and it, both over the credits. And then also the last song that Jack Black sings that are kind of songs that are, people are kind of sick of. And this and yeah. the song that Marie DeSalle sings are songs that people are kind of sick of. They're sort of like, these big broad love songs are songs that like these guys in a different in different scenes probably made fun of yeah but at the end this like just ex this uh embracing of um like being vulnerable and liking what you like uh including yeah. people 
um, is a yeah is, is a pretty interesting metaphor, right? Yeah, yeah. I um I think that kind of takes us to final thoughts. Like, I, I think this will segue really nice to what we're going to talk about comes next because I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. I was expecting a cringe fest. I think if I had uh, associated myself with different parts of of Rob's personality, I probably would have. I felt like, but regardless of that, this isn't just my own personal story with it. But I, it is kind of because I, this movie was very affecting to me, and I was wor- like, I, I probably wouldn't have revisited this if, um, if we weren't doing it on the show. Which is part of the reason I wanted to do it on the show because I was like, if it's a cringe fest and I don't like this movie and I have to be embarrassed, I'd rather do it as a way to dissect with you than to watch it in a vacuum. But like I've said all of these lines, I, I didn't even look at my notes. I've seen this movie hundreds of times. Like I could probably walk through not just the plot, but each specific line, uh, each specific music cue that comes up, and everything else. And so it was really fun revisiting it and realizing that like. This is still a very funny movie. It's a very interesting movie. It's a that doesn't have a lot of like I said. This is a this is a movie at like the highest level about like adults settling in some ways, as opposed to finding the love of your life or or things like that. And I haven't read any Nick Hornby books, but I I the the three adaptations that came out in this era, I actually liked all of them. I like. About a Boy with Hugh Grant. Um, About a Boy's a good movie, and I like uh, Fever Pitch. Like I, I, Fever Pitch is a is a I think a really funny movie too. And so maybe I should go back and read some Nick Hornby books. Um, but he does seem to like really like have a a sense of like who these types of guys are. And while I agree with your assessment that like. There's a danger in identifying with Rob so much that you're like, women are terrible. They're just out to hurt me. And and why why am I getting left? Which is clearly a Rob philosophy for a lot of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as long as you uh, recognize Rob for who he is, there's there's a lot to really love about this movie. And like I said, it, it feels feels very timeless. It does not feel like it's aged a day. Yeah, and I, I I agree. I will say the ending, I don't see it as like so much settling in a negative connotation because there's that speech earlier where Rob talks about her. And he oh, says... Oh, about why he loves her, yeah. And he's saying like, things were just good. Like, they weren't... Yeah. It wasn't every... Not everything was like spectacular all the time, but things were just good. And like, things made sense. And like, you know, you were talking... They were easy. Yeah, and like talking about how like it troubled him that they weren't having this tumultuous up and down and he wasn't insecure about whether or not he belonged with her and he didn't, he didn't get his heart broken by her and that like things just kind of came naturally. And so, so like the word settling has some negative connotations that I feel like at the end, it's like, it's, it's him realizing that it's not settling to have someone that you're comfortable with and who, and who actually understands who you are and and has seen all sides of you. Right. I think, I think she's settling a little, but uh, she could absolutely do better. Yeah, uh, but I guess <coughs> I don't mean settling in a negative connotation too. I know that has a negative connotation. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I I guess I I think about it like you need to de-romanticize your idea of what a good mature relationship is, and like get away from the fantasies and the fairy tales and things like that. I think that's what happens at the end. Like I think Laura's obviously there. She knows who this guy is. She knows. 
what she's going to get from him, what she's not going to get from him. And I think, you know, um, John Rob kind of is still looking for like a, uh, like literally a, a fantasy, like, you know, be my sexy person who likes everything I like and listens to everything I say and, and do all that stuff. And so I, you know, him realizing that like everyone's a human being and there's ups and downs. Um, I, so I, I guess I, I am saying settling, but I, it's it's just very different the like realization that like they have a comfortable f- relationship and they should keep trying is just such a different ending than most any other like romantic comedy or whatever you want to call it. I know that's putting this in a weird genre box that I don't think it quite fits in, but it's probably the one that's closest to it. Mm-hmm. Uh anything else before we wrap on our two for QSAC? By uh, by Q get two sacks free? No, I think this has been a fun month. I, I don't think I quite realized um how charmed I was by like John Cusack and like especially as like a young man and how much his movies impacted like my views of masculinity or like yeah. my views of the world or at least how they reflected them in some cases. Yeah. Um and even the ones that are gross point blank, like that what he was able to pull off, like, but while speaking to the specific nature of his own personhood, and 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 speaking th- obviously through a script that someone else wrote, or and some, or he co- only co-wrote, um, I I feel like really touched by this month. It was nice to have a nice to have a yeah. month like this. Yeah, this was a fun change of pace. Uh, and now, excitedly, I think it flows right into our next month, which is called Boo Sack, where we do the Raven fourteen oh eight. One crazy summer. Uh, the War. Or War, Inc. We're also going to do The War, the Elijah Wood, Kevin Costner movie. Um, uh, no, we're not doing that. So part of the reason why I said it's segue is, is that High Fidelity is a movie that I loved as a kid or a college kid, high school kid, and I hadn't revisited it in a long time. And Peter and I have been trying to figure out a frame to do some movies in that genre for a while because there's a lot of movies that if you were a budding cinephile in – the late 90s, early 2000s that were on the top of the IMD charts and you saw at a particular age and that you were extremely affected by and everyone had the posters up in in their college dorms and we couldn't quite find the right framework for it and Peter had the great idea of let's just do that. Let's do – we don't have to limit it to just like movies that we used to love that we're worried we're going to be embarrassed by. Let's take a broader scope, have some of those, and do our double month on college dorm room poster movies. So that high fidelity, I don't, I, I mean, I had the poster in my college dorm, but I don't think it's a common college dorm poster movie. But it, it's one that kind of fits that will be interesting to revisit. And so we are doing a broad framework to be clear. Not all of these movies do I love, and I'm worried about going back. One explicitly I fucking hated when I saw it in 2002, and I hate it now, but uh, we're going to talk about it. Uh, So those movies, those eight movies, we're going to do a double feature of Boondock Saints, which is the one that both Peter and I uh, hate. But we're going to do it paired with the documentary about the director Troy Duffy's implosion called Overnight, which is very good. And I think it'll be interesting to talk about that. That movie was omnipresent in college and thereafter for for uh, film bros. And uh, I really don't like it. <laughs> but I do like Overnight. And I think uh, t- 
talking about Troy Duffy's uh, complete meltdown is going to be fun. Uh, Fight Club, which is at one point was my favorite movie of all time. I saw it when it came out in theaters. Uh, have not probably is up there with high fidelity for most watches have not revisited in 15 years mm-hmm. was taken over by film bros that misunderstood the message will be interesting to revisit that one i think Peter. oh yeah absolutely uh donnie darko goodfellas scarface train spotting clockwork orange and the shawshank redemption so uh again some of those like clockwork orange i used to love i haven't seen in a long time um, I'm, I feel like there's enough backlash against that movie, uh, even in the last 20, you know, 20 years that I have no idea what I'm going to think of it. Donnie Darko I used to love, but I feel like I saw other more interesting movies. Will I still love it? I don't know. I feel like The Shine came off that one. Goodfellas I know I still love. Train Spotting. I think I still like. I've never seen Scarface. I don't know. I, it, it's, uh... I feel like it's a little more mainstreamy of the type of movies that we we cover, but I do like a lot of these, and I think it'll be interesting to to cover. Peter, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. It's not quite a bad movie summer because some of these movies are quite good. Uh, yeah, we are gonna get to talk some shit about uh, uh, men and uh, film roles. So yeah. Yeah, in this way, in a weird way, high fidelity is a nice way to transition. Uh, yeah, that's why I said it's kind of perfect because we're going to be all the robs that yeah. can take the wrong message from these movies. Um, uh, will it'll it'll be a perfect perfect uh, discussion of that because I mean that does affect like you know I love Fight Club or loved Fight Club I don't even know anymore and then all of a sudden all the worst people I knew loved Fight Club and you're like oh do I like Fight Club because. Everyone I meet that likes Fight Club is garbage, man. Uh, so, like, the the type of people that glom on to the movies you like um, sometimes can have a really negative influence on the way you view the movie. And I do feel like there's a subset of these, which was kind of the initial impetus for this, like a, like a Fight Club, like a Clockwork Orange, uh, even a train spotting that's like, who do I want to be associated with saying I like these movies? And did I accidentally reverse and set myself to thinking I dislike these movies because some of the worst people you know like these movies? So I, I think that part of it's going to be a ton of fun. So looking forward to it starting next week on We Love to Watch. Da-da-da-da. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch.
If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches. Peter and Aaron. <laughs>